Welcome to this Upila Audio presentation of Mission Moonfire by Jack Lancer. Number two in the Christopher Cool series of teen spy novels. I am your narrator, J.J. Campanella. If you remember, Christopher Cool and his Apache Indian roommate, Geronimo Johnson, are sophomores at an Ivy League university, and they combine their campus lives with undercover assignments for a vital arm of the CIA called the Top Secret Educational Espionage Network. They've been expertly schooled in all the arts of espionage, and the two daring teen agents work closely with another agent, the red-haired Spice Carter, a clever co-ed agent, to thwart enemy spies and trouble spots throughout the world. Mission Moonfire concerns a flaming crescent moon and the trail of fanatical thugs that take Chris to Turkey to hunt down a renegade scientist known as Dr. Death. And now, Mission Moonfire. Chapter 1. The Ruby Signal. There's the place, said Chris Cool. A red neon sign glowing in the darkness spelled out the Seraglio Turkish Restaurant. The blonde college sophomore swung the wheel and his black bullet-like jaguar perched smoothly to a stop at the curb. Chris and his Apache Indian roommate, Geronimo Johnson, climbed out. I'd still like to know what this war party is all about, Geronimo said. Ours is not the reason why, Chris replied. The great white father is playing his cards close to the vest tonight. A radio call on campus at Kingston University had brought the two youths, speeding into New York City on a new assignment against enemy agents. Both Chris and Geronimo were members of the top-secret educational espionage network, a corps of brilliant young students serving as an undercover arm of America's Central Intelligence Agency. The boys crossed the street to the restaurant. It was in a seedy section of Lower Manhattan on the fringes of Greenwich Village. A paunchy doorman in baggy pants and feathered turban bowed low and brushed his fingers to his forehead, lips, and chest, and said, Welcome, Affendis! His pop eyes took on a puzzled stare as the long-haired Indian youth responded, Andal, shikis. That's Apache for high friend, Chris explained. He's just off the reservation. His English isn't too good. A wailing din of oriental music struck the boys' ears as they entered. The smoky, dingy restaurant was filled with a Saturday night crowd of patrons. All were men, and from their faces seemed to be mostly Turks, Arabs, and other Middle Eastern types. Some were puffing on hubble-bubble water pipes. Chris and Geronimo found a table along one wall. A costumed waiter took their orders for shish kebab. Presently he returned with the sizzling hot morsels of roast lamb skewered on long steel spits. What do we do now? Geronimo grumbled. Just sit here and chow up? Chris shrugged. That's the usual procedure, unless you want to take the stuff home in a doggy bag. You know what I mean, Chunde. 
Switching to Apache, Geronimo added, When does the action start? Chris pretended to check the time on his wristwatch while he twirled the stem to the control channel frequency. Kingston 1 calling Q. There was a faint hum of radio static, then the voice of Teen Control responded in his usual fake British accent. Q here? We're at the Seraglio, sir. So I assumed, Q said coldly. Since those were your orders, you will wait there as long as necessary until contacted. Understood. As Chris signed off, he glanced across the table at Geronimo. Got that all straight now? I think I grasped the broad general strategy. Namely, wait here until contacted. The teen agents were eating hungrily when a sudden cymbal crash drew their attention to the trio of musicians sitting cross-legged on a dais at one end of the room. The master of ceremonies stepped up to the microphone. First in Turkish, then in Arabic, and finally in English, he announced, And now our star attraction, for which you have all been waiting for, the lovely Circassian Slave Girls! Well, that may help to pass the time, Chris murmured. Again, the haunting, high-pitched wail of Turkish music rattled the tableware. A group of veiled dancers leapt out onto the floor, swaying and undulating, moving their arms in graceful gestures. They swirled about the room. Their gauzy costumes glittered with colorful fake jewels. One dancer with long red hair took up a position facing the boy's alcove. Chris watched her performance admiringly. It's known as the Swiss watch dance, he muttered. Twenty-one jewel movement. Ilse, Geronimo hissed a sudden warning in Apache. That red jewel isn't just moving, it's flashing. Chris's eyes widened. Sure enough, a ruby on the dancer's costume was flashing like a miniature blinker light. Dot it, dot it, dot it. Morse code letter N, the teen agent radio signal for beware, danger. The ruby's flashes began to vary, and Chris translated the code letters in his head as they were spelled out. S-C-I-M-I-T-A-R. Scimitar. With another cymbal crash, the music finally ended. The dancing girls unveiled their faces and bowed to a storm of applause. Chris and Geronimo had just enough time to recognize the red-haired dancer before the group hurried off the floor. That was Spice Carter, Chris gasped in a low voice. Spice Carter was a teen agent from Vassar and had recently worked with the two Kingston University students on a thrilling assignment in France. Geronimo nodded. Did you get the message? Scimitar. Beware scimitar? What does it mean? Well, you know, a scimitar is one of those long, curved Turkish swords. The Apache gave a small snort of disgust. I know that. I meant the whole message. What was she trying to tell us? Chris shrugged. How would I know? Let Q figure it out. He's very big on this secret message stuff. Allow me to remind you, Chunde, old buddy that Q was not in any danger there in his steel-walled control teepee, and possibly we are. The boys were finishing their meal uneasily when one of the restaurant employees came to their table. 
a huge swarthy man dressed like an oriental palace guard. His head was swathed in a white turban, and a long curving scimitar hung from his waist sash. He salaamed low and spoke to Chris. Infadim, the owner of Saraglio, Mr. Morad, sends his compliments. He would be honored if you would come to his office. Really? Well, that's very nice of him. Chris dabbed his mouth with a napkin as he eyed the scimitar. By the way, is that uh, toad sticker you have there a real Turkish sword? The man flashed a toothy grin. May I borrow your handkerchief, Infadim? He took the handkerchief from the breast pocket of Chris's sports jacket and tossed it into the air. As it fluttered downward, he whipped out the blade from its sheath. With a lightning slash, he cut the fine linen cloth in two. My scimitar is quite genuine as you see, Effendim. Chris and Geronimo exchanged glances. Good thing you weren't blowing your nose when he did that, the Apache muttered as he took a sip of thick Turkish coffee. Thanks for that reassuring thought. With some misgiving, Chris rose from the table and followed the man out of the room. Was this his contact? If not, Geronimo was there to back him up. They went down a corridor and up a flight of rickety stairs to the second floor. The guard opened a door, then stood aside to let Chris enter. The office was luxuriously furnished with silken drapes and glowingly colored Turkish rugs. An expensive-looking walnut desk stood at one side of the room, but Mr. Murad was seated cross-legged on cushions facing the door. He was a fat, foxy-looking man with an enormous up-twirled mustache. He wore a red fez and was puffing at a water pipe. On the wall above him hung a red Turkish flag with its white crescent moon and star. There was a long pause while Murad eyed Chris up and down, and then he murmured, Akshamlar, Hayur Olsum Beykul. Chris, who was majoring in linguistics at Kingston, spoke Turkish fluently, but he looked blank and pretended not to understand. I beg your pardon, sir? I wished you good evening, Mr. Kool. Murad fastened his lips to the stem of the water pipe and then added, You are Mr. Christopher Kool, I believe. How did you guess? The restaurant owner smiled and spread his hands as if to brush the question aside. You live in New York? No, I'm just visiting. I'm a student. Ah, yes, a student. Murad began to chat pleasantly and quiz Chris further. As he waited for the restaurateur to get to the point, Chris began to feel strangely woozy. What exactly did you want to see me about, Mr. Murad? Murad gestured vaguely to the crescent flag above his head. The moon is on fire, is it not? Chris glanced at the flag and then gaped in astonishment. The crescent moon appeared to be in flames. As he blinked and turned his head to clear his vision, he heard the word Geronimo. Then the flames faded, and once again he was looking at an ordinary Turkish flag. What kind of trick was that? Chris asked sharply. Murad's only reply was a shrug. He clapped his hands. The door opened and the guard reappeared. It has been a most enjoyable meeting with you, Mr. Kool, Murad murmured. I trust that you and your friend will return often to the Saraglio to enjoy our fine Turkish cuisine. As he left the office, Chris saw a sly grin on the face of his host. 
but the youthful teenager's head was now reeling. On rubbery legs, he followed the attendant as far as the stairway. Then everything went black in front of Chris's eyes, and he felt as if he was toppling into a bottomless pit. Chapter 2 Hi-Fi Hocus Pocus Chris opened his eyes slowly. He wished his head would make up its mind and stay one size, preferably seven and one quarter. It seemed to be swelling and shrinking in and out, out and in. A queer jagged line swam in front of Chris's field of vision. As his eyes finally focused, he saw that it was a crack in the grimy plaster ceiling. His eyes traveled downward. He was lying on a cot in a bare cell-like room. The turbaned attendant was standing nearby, arms folded like a huge statue. He smiled. Ah, you are awake, Effendim. I'm afraid so. You look depressingly real. Chris swung his legs off the cot and sat upright slowly and carefully so as not to jiggle his head too much. I hate to ask foolish questions, but where am I? At the Soraglio restaurant, Effendim. You do not remember. I'd rather not, but go on. You did not feel well after seeing Mr. Murad. That figures. Chris nodded glumly. You fainted, the guard went on. You might have fallen downstairs if I had not caught you. So I brought you here to lie down until you felt better. Well, that was awfully kind of you. Thanks a lot. But what had made him black out? Chris had a sneaking suspicion that Mara's water pipe must have emitted some sort of knockout gas, in which case he had a score to settle. He levered himself up to his feet. I do appreciate your hospitality, but I think it's time for me to go now. No, no, Fedim. The attendant strode forward to block his way. You must rest longer. You're not well enough to leave. Please, no coaxing. I'm in no mood for an argument. Chris tried to brush past him. You will stay, Effendim. The attendant's face hardened into granite. He seized Chris's shoulders and started to push him back onto the cot. Chris's fingers stiffened, and he jabbed hard into the guard's solar plexus. As the man doubled over with a grunt of pain, Chris's arm axed downward and karate chopped to the back of the neck. The attendant sagged slowly to the floor. Chris stepped over him and walked to the door. It was not locked. He went out and found himself in a second-floor hallway. Down the corridor was the door to Murad's office. Chris hurried toward it and flung the door open. Inside, a fat man with a fez gaped at him in surprise. It was a moment before Chris recognized him as Mr. Murad, minus his mustache. There was a faint whirring noise, and Chris saw that it came from a ventilator fan in the wall. All traces of the water pipe smoke were gone, and the pipe itself had been removed from the room. Freshening up the atmosphere a bit, are we? Chris inquired as he closed the door behind him. The restaurateur seemed to freeze. What is it you want, Mr. Cool? Why, Mr. Murad, you've shaved. The man's eyes glinted with cold hatred. I repeat, what is it you want, Mr. Cool? Let's start with a few friendly words of explanation as to why you slipped me that knockout gas. Murad snarled. I have no time for games, my young friend. Kindly leave here at once before I call my bouncer. Oh, I'm so sorry. 
Your bouncer just got bounced. In two quick steps, Chris moved across the room. He slapped Murad's hand away from a wall button and grabbed him by the front of his coat. Now then, suppose you start talking. Murad's eyes bulged in fear. He pulled loose from Chris's grasp, darted across the office, and yanked open a desk drawer. There was no time to stop him before he seized a weapon. Chris whipped out a slim silver pen and pressed the pocket clip. Murat's face sagged in a sudden expression of wide-eyed baby-like innocence. Then he slipped to the floor in a mountainous heap. The sleepy sliver dart fired from Chris's pen would keep him unconscious for some time. The teen agent hurriedly checked the desk drawer. To his surprise, he found no gun or other weapon. It contained only Murad's fake mustache and a circlet of blue-green beads. Why was he so anxious to get his hands on these? Chris wondered. The youth examined the false mustache. As he had expected, the hairs concealed small twin filters which slipped into the wearer's nostrils. No doubt to protect him from the water pipe gas. Perhaps Murad had intended to uncork more gas somehow to get rid of his unwanted visitor. The beads appeared to be ordinary worry beads, of the kind often fingered by Greek and Turkish men for nervous release. Chris could detect nothing unusual about them. Nonetheless, he slipped them into his pocket for later examination. Drawer by drawer, Chris ransacked the desk. Its only contents were bills, receipts, business correspondence, and ledgers, such as a restaurant owner might keep in his office. The teen agent's eyes swept over the room and then stopped at a wall safe. It was nothing too formidable for a graduate of teens instruction class in locks and safes. The class had been taught by the most expert ex-safecracker available. Chris wiped his hands carefully and turned the dial back and forth until he heard the tumblers click into place. The door swung open. Inside were several bundles of currency and some legal documents. Chris replaced them after a quick glance and closed the safe again. The Turkish flag on the wall caught his eye. Chris examined it and felt the material between his thumb and fingers. Apparently it was nothing but plain cotton fabric. Chris glanced again at the unconscious figure on the floor. The restaurant owner's plump midriff was moving slowly up and down in the gentle rhythm of slumber. Sleep well, Abu Ben Murad, said Chris, and went out of the office, closing the door behind him. As he started down the stairs, his feeling of wooziness returned. Chris clutched the scarred handrail and negotiated the steps cautiously so as not to topple. In the hallway below, two waiters moved back and forth with trays. They paid no attention to the teen agent as he made his way into the main dining room. To Chris's surprise, it was almost empty. Only a few guests remained at the tables. He must have been blacked out for far longer than he realized. And then a startling realization hit him. Geronimo was gone. Chris spotted their own waiter spreading a fresh tablecloth in an adjoining alcove. He looked up. The bill is paid, Ephedim. Great, but what about my friend? The Indian with the long hair? He said he would go back to the compass by himself, whatever that means, and that he would meet you there later. Chris hastened outside past the doorman. The night air felt good after the stuffy atmosphere of the seraglio. The jaguar was still parked across the street. Chris walked over to it, frowning thoughtfully. Odd that Geronimo had gone off without waiting, 
Perhaps he had seen someone suspicious and had left the restaurant to trail him or follow up some other clue. Chris considered calling his Apache pal on his wristwatch communicator. No, he had better not. If Geronimo was engaged in some stealthy undertaking, the radio buzz might give him away. Better not report to Q either until he knew what was what. For some reason, Chris felt relaxed and not particularly worried. The best thing was to go back to Kingston and wait until Jerry checked in. The Jaguar started with its usual purr, then roared to life as it shot off through the darkened streets of lower Manhattan. Chris drove through the Howland Tunnel to the New Jersey side and headed south along the turnpike. Fog was rolling in from the sea, mingled with the chemical smells of the Jersey meadows. It was after midnight. Traffic was sparse enough for him to notice a car following about a hundred yards behind. Presently, he turned down an exit ramp onto the road leading to Kingston, and the traffic dwindled away completely. Under the monotonous drone, Chris began to feel strangely giddy again. Although the speedometer showed 50 miles an hour, everything seemed to be rolling by in slow motion. I must still be woozy from that water pipe gas, Chris thought. I better watch it. No headlights were visible now in his rearview mirror. I must have been imagining things, he decided. Suddenly, the radio telephone buzzed under the dashboard. Chris groped for the handset and raised it to his ear. Mr. Cool. The voice sounded strangely muffled. Chris glanced in surprise at the selector switch on the dash. Someone had turned it from the HQ channel to regular phone. Instinctively, Chris pressed an emergency button before applying. Yes, who is this? That is of no importance. If you will turn on your car hi-fi, you will hear a most interesting tape recording. There was a click as the caller hung up. A cartridge, Chris noticed, had been inserted into the stereo tape player. He switched it on. Strange-sounding oriental music came from the four door-mounted speakers. The Jaguar's cockpit was like an echo chamber, engulfing him in the weird waves of stereo sound as he drove along. A soothing voice began to speak. At times it rose above the plaintive wail of the Turkish music, only to sink again to a monotonous babble. What was it saying? Chris heard, yet somehow did not hear. I'm being hypnotized, he thought, and struggled hard against his lethargy. Chapter 3. A Figure from the Fog The droning voice went on. There is no need for worry. You have nothing to fear. You are really relaxed now, completely at ease. Suddenly it became clearer, more insistent. At the next side road you will turn, you understand. Turn at the next side road. Chris shook his head and his lips tried to fashion a retort. Instead, he said, I understand. Chris heard himself speaking mechanically like a ventriloquist dummy, answering as if the tape could hear him. Find a lonesome spot along the side of the road, away from houses, and preferably among some trees. Park there and wait with your headlights on. Park and wait. A few minutes later, Chris glimpsed a reflector sign ahead, indicating a rural road on the right. He slowed down as he approached it and swung the wheel. The Jaguar rounded the turn and glided on. 
down a blacktop country lane. Chris passed several darkened farmhouses. Then the way sloped gently downhill into a valley. On one side lay woods, on the other open field. Chris pulled off the road into the wooded area and cut his ignition. Here in the lowland the fog was gathering more thickly. Mist swirled among the trees, like whitish veils in the cone of his headlights. Noises reached his ears, yet failed to register. The sounds of a car stopping somewhere nearby. I'm in danger, Chris thought dully, but his pulse scarcely responded to the warning. Suddenly he blinked as something glinted brightly, dazzling his eyes. Chris threw up one hand and peered through his fingers at the shiny object. It was a curving blade, a scimitar, reflecting the jag's headlights. Slowly a figure materialized out of the mist, holding the scimitar. Chris gasped. It was Geronimo. Step by step the figure came closer. Chris stared in disbelief. Was this really his Apache pal? Or was he seeing a phantom, an illusion created by the hypnotic tape? The figure spoke in a low, monotonous voice. I'm your friend, Chris, your friend. Don't you recognize me? Yes, I recognize you. You're Geronimo. The words forced themselves out of Chris's throat. I want you to trust me, Chris. Trust me absolutely. Do you understand? I want you to answer my questions clearly. By answering, you will identify yourself and prove that you are really my friend, Chris Cool. I, I understand. Good. Now then, you and I are American secret agents, aren't we? That, that's right. Chris could feel beads of perspiration forming on his forehead. To what intelligence group do we belong? Chris's brain was in turmoil as he struggled to remain silent. But he heard himself saying, Teen! We're teen agents! And why were we sent to the Seraglio tonight? With a terrific effort, Chris reminded himself that he and Geronimo always spoke in his roommate's Indian tongue when they wanted to evade eavesdroppers. He answered an Apache. We were told to wait there till someone contacted us. Answer my question, Chris, in English, please. Chris felt a stir of excitement, as if he had just succeeded in breaking through some kind of barrier. What's the matter, Chunde? he queried. Don't you savvy your own lingo? Answer my question in English. Why were we set to the Seraglio tonight? Chris struggled desperately not to obey. He knew for sure now, with at least part of his mind, that he was under hypnosis that the man with the scimitar was not Geronimo Johnson. If only he could resist the command. The emergency stimulant, Chris remembered suddenly. Why hadn't he thought of that before? His fingers groped for the special fraternity pin on his sports jacket. He pressed the pin with his thumb, jabbing the point deeply into a vein in his palm. The action needled a squirt of pure adrenaline into his bloodstream. Its effect was like a jolt of electricity, rousing him from his mental fog. Answer me, the figure shouted, but Chris's brain was clear now, and the speaker was no longer Geronimo. It was a masked man. Chris started to flick on the ignition. The swordsman sensed at once that his victim was about to escape. 
He darted forward and yanked open the car door. There was no time to argue with a swinging, razor-sharp blade. Chris bolted out the opposite side of the car. With a quick glance over his shoulder, before sprinting for cover, he saw the masked man pop something into his mouth. Chris's momentary pause was almost fatal. His enemy gave a blood-curdling yell. The moon is on fire! And he cleared the jaguar's hood in a single leap. Then he came at Chris with the ferocity of a madman, swinging the scimitar right and left in terrifying roundhouse slashes. Chris called on all his skill at Aikido, whirling and backtracking to avoid the blade in the precise motions which his Japanese master had drilled into all his teen students. One false move in the darkness and he was done for. Step by step, doing the dance of eight directions, Chris maneuvered himself toward a tree. His nerves froze as he backed against the trunk. The scimitar whistled through the air, but Chris was already bowing gracefully, and the blade buried itself deeply in the tree trunk. As he straightened erect, Chris's right arm shot upward in the shote, or hand piston movement. The blow struck the masked man's chin with pile driver force, and he dropped like a pole-axe steer. Chris was still panting and shuddering when he heard the racket of a helicopter. Hastily, he made his way back to the Jaguar and got a flashlight from the glove compartment. Switching on the beam, he waved it back and forth. Presently, the chopper took shape in the night sky. Its brilliant searchlight cut through the ground mist, and it hovered down onto the field across the road. Chris ran to meet it. The pilot was Dick Curry, an ex-army flyer who had learned his trade in the jungles of Vietnam. He greeted Chris with a grin. Fancy meeting you here, the cool cat himself. Not tonight, boy. I was in a very warm glow just a minute ago. Chris told Curry what had just happened, adding, How did you get here so fast? Chris knew that when he had pressed the emergency button on his radio telephone, the call would be traced automatically. The same button had also turned on a homing transmitter, enabling the Jaguar's position to be fixed if the teen agent failed to report in voice code. But even a vertical takeoff jet could not have homed in on his signal so quickly, all the way from Kennedy. I was already out looking for your buddy Geronimo, Curry explained. Geronimo? What's that Indian up to? Tell you all about it on the way. Let's take care of your playmate here first, though. Chris unmasked his attacker, but did not recognize the unconscious man. Curry handcuffed the fellow while Chris locked the Jaguar. Then they carried their prisoner across the road and loaded him aboard the helicopter. As the chopper soared aloft, Curry reported to control over the radio. Any more news on Kingston 2? Nothing definite yet. They're still triangulating, the operator replied. The best fix so far indicates that the truck is heading south along the Jersey coast. Curry signed off and turned to Chris. Tune your wristwatch to the emergency channel. Chris did so and got a faint, steady beep. That's Geronimo's signal. He's in a panel truck somewhere on the highway with your red-headed girlfriend. Spice? Chris exclaimed. What happened? Apparently, the enemy agents at that Turkish restaurant noticed her signaling you two and kidnapped her. Geronimo, Curry said, had gone to the restaurant washroom while Chris was upstairs and had taken the opportunity to snoop around the premises. He had seen Spice tied and gagged being shoved into a panel truck at the rear of the restaurant. 
After hastily notifying control over his wristwatch communicator, the Apache had chased after the truck as it pulled away and had managed to yank open the loading door and leap into the van compartment. He had untied Spice, but the two teen agents had decided to stay aboard and find out where the truck was going. Meanwhile, he had transmitted his description and license number. The Highway Patrol haven't spotted it yet? Chris asked tentatively. Not yet. Geronimo is keeping his watch tuned to the emergency transmit channel. Hasn't much range, of course, but Control has every available FCC monitor reporting directional bearings on the moving signal. Shh! Hold it! Chris broke in. He raised his watch to his ear and listened, and then exchanged a worried look with Dick Curry. The beep had suddenly ceased. At that moment, Geronimo and Spice were being jounced and shaken as the truck roared along. I may not be able to wear a bikini after this, Spice complained. I'm going to be black and blue everywhere. Geronimo was in no mood for quips. They've turned off onto a dirt road. Maybe I'd better report to control again. He flicked his watch stem to voice transmit and spoke with his wrist close to his mouth. Kingston 2 calling control. Come in, please. Kingston 2 calling control. No response. He put his ear to the watch. There was no trace of reception static, not even a faint power hum. Ay! Geronimo exclaimed. My radio's conked out. Oh, great. How long do you suppose your signal's been? Spice broke off as the truck suddenly ground to a halt. From inside the van, they heard the cab doors open and two men leapt out. Other voices greeted them. Geronimo judged that at least five men must now be outside the truck. He crouched in the darkness, ready for action. Pulling out his pen, he whispered, You stay back, Savvy. I can handle this. The next moment, the van door was open, letting in the sound of heavy surf. Geronimo gave an Apache war whoop and pressed his pen clip. The man who had opened the door slumped asleep. Geronimo leapt over him and pressed the pen clip again. A second man dropped with a sleepy sliver in his chest. The other enemy agents recovered their wits and yanked out their weapons. Geronimo barely had time to take in his surroundings. They were on a small wharf. But now the other three were on top of him. A sweeping blow from a heavy revolver knocked the pen from his hand. Then something struck him hard in the back of the head, and the Apache tumbled face forward. <laughs>